Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everybody to part two of episode 20 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing? Hello, good. Uh, feels like we just did this. I know, <laughs> because we did. <laughs> we did. <laughs> through the magic, we will uh, be a week later. <laughs> uh, but we're uh, going to be diving back into Snowtown again for part two this week. Before we get to that, we wanted to advise our listeners that this case contains graphic content, includes crimes against children and animals, suicide themes, alongside frequent discussion surrounding the LGBTQI plus communities. We encourage our listeners to exercise self-care and to look after themselves if choosing to listen to this episode. So as we said, we're diving headfirst back into the Snowtown case. This will be part two, so if you haven't listened to the first part, go back and do so. This episode won't make a whole lot of sense unless you do. But despite the case having the moniker of Snowtown, we'll see as we go along that the small town about 150 kilometres north of Adelaide really didn't have a lot to do with this case until the very end. Like last week, how we spent much of our time in Adelaide's northern suburb of Salisbury North, much of this next part of the story takes place in Murray Bridge, a town about an hour east of Adelaide. But the change in setting is just that. The characters remain the same, and their actions only get worse. Ninth of May, 1999. Snowtown, South Australia. Jamie and David made the trip to Snowtown, where Jamie had organised for them to check out a cheap computer a mate of his was selling. $200, a deal that was too good to pass up. They arrived in around an hour, parked out the front of the old bank building and wandered inside. David saw the computer and then he saw John Bunting, who he knew. This is the computer, Bunting said, and a second later... His offsider Wagner had David by the throat, 
and they handcuffed the terrified young man. They led him into an area that had once been a bank manager's office and proceeded to make him hand over his wallet, pin number and recite a number of phrases and words into a recording device. David, shaking like a leaf, turned to his stepbrother and said, Jamie, am I going home? Yes, Jamie said. Do you promise? David asked again. I promise, Jamie said. Then Bunting put on Live's Throwing Copper album, and a maniacal grin spread across Wagner's face. David wasn't going home. In 1997, Thomas Trevelyan met Barry Lane. Trevelyan was born in 1979, he was turning 18 around this time, and he was a troubled youth. Obsessed with the military but not able to pass recruitment tests to enter the Defence Force, Trevelyan pranced about in car keys and camouflage fatigues, carried a carving knife, and lined his cap with tinfoil to repel satellites. He is outwardly troubled to people who meet him, and at age 14 had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, for which he was heavily medicated. He had a strained relationship with his parents, but he was close to his grandfather Thomas and his cousin Lenore. They support him through two suicide attempts during his teens, one by firearm and one by hanging. By Christmas 1996, Thomas is assessed as depressed and worn out on the verge of a nervous breakdown. This is when he meets Barry Lane. Lane, known for his past solicitation of young men, slides up to Trevelyan and welcomes him to his home. Trevelyan's grandparents had met the strange Barry Lane, this 42-year-old skeleton of a man with a high forehead and receding hairline, upon their last visit to see Thomas. Their next visit, Thomas had cleared out all of his possessions and moved in with Lane to Hectorville in Adelaide's northeast. Their relationship was seemingly sexual and had been groomed by Lane in a similar fashion to how Robert Wagner had been coerced. At least, that's how Robert Wagner and John Bunting viewed things. Bunting and Wagner, fresh off their kill of Michael Gardner, who now lay rotting in a barrel of acid in Bunting's shed, go on living, spending their days covering their tracks and ripping people off, whether it be by fraud or simply theft. Bunting was continuing his mission in life, holding his roundtable vigilante meetings and proliferating his targets on his wall of spiders. Wagner, his silent oaf of an offsider, strong as an ox and twice as thick, carried out his bidding without hesitation. On the night of the 17th of October 1997, Bunting and Wagner ambushed Barry Lane in his Hectorville home he was sharing with Thomas Trevelyan. Trevelyan is coerced into helping the pair. The mentally unstable boy easy pickings for the convincing and frightening Bunting and Wagner. Lane had served his purpose as Bunting's informant over the years. He was no longer useful and knew too much. Now, rather than crawl back under a rock, Lane had slithered out and struck at another young boy, lured him just like he'd done to Robert Wagner when he was 14. With Trevelyan's help, Bunting and Wagner overpower and handcuff Lane, demand his bank card and PIN number before forcing him to call his mother Sylvia. It was a strange call. Sylvia was sure Barry was drunk, which was odd as he wasn't a big drinker except for on the anniversary of his grandmother's death. But Lane launched a verbal tirade down the line at his mother Sylvia, 
calling her a mole and an asshole before promptly declaring he was leaving for Queensland, hitchhiking, a fresh start. Sylvia could hear someone in the background over Barry's hysteria. She was sure it was Thomas, his new housemate. After that call ended, Lane was forced to call an ex-fiancé of his named Michelle. He and Thomas both spoke with her, saying that they'd broken down in the suburb of Clare and wouldn't be home for a while until Barry's pension came in and they could fix the vehicle. He asked Michelle to check his mail and feed the dogs. Bunting and Wagner stuffed a rolled up bandage into Lane's mouth as a gag and wrapped yellow duct tape around his mouth and chin to stifle and muffle his screams as they tortured him. Bunting and Wagner spent the entire night berating and abusing Barry Lane, forcing Thomas Trevelyan to join in as they crushed Lane's toes one by one with a pair of pliers. They call him a dirty, stinking fag who can't keep his mouth shut before Wagner strangles his former lover to death. The pain finally comes to an end for Barry Lane. But they were right about one thing. Lane had told Veronica, Bunting's ex-wife, about helping them dispose of what he thought was his friend Clinton Trezice's body. They'd just been bags that Lane was ordered to carry, according to him. But Lane had also told this story to his mother, Sylvia. She'd encouraged him to go to the police if it were true, but Lane never got that far. Bunting is ecstatic and Wagner on a high as they wrap Lane's dead body in tape, put him in a garbage bag and roll him up in a length of carpet. Bunting and Wagner joke as they carry out their morbid ritual, returning four days later to recover Lane's body before stuffing it into a barrel, which they fill up with hydrochloric acid once back at Bunting's shed. Bunting calls Wagner Papa Smurf now for the blue colour their victims turn when Wagner is choking the life out of them. First they go blue, then they poo, Wagner chortled to his mate. Michelle reports Barry Lane missing soon after, around 10 days later, Upon visiting his house to feed his animals and noticing the door was wide open and sensing a strange feeling within the house, she too recalls Barry mentioning he'd helped dispose of Clinton Trezias's body, something she hadn't believed to be true at the time. Barry talked a lot of shit until she saw Clinton's missing persons case on Australia's Most Wanted and began to believe him. Barry Lane's name joins a list of seemingly unrelated missing persons cases and Thomas Trevelyan, no longer under the spell of his pedophilic partner, is taken under the wing of Robert Wagner. Trevelyan moves in with the Wagner family. Maxine immediately doesn't like him because of how he is with the kids. Wagner gives Maxine very little as to who this kid was and why he was there, just that they'd helped him get out from under Barry Lane's spell or words to that effect. Trevelyan is erratic in his moods and prone to violent outbursts, which disturbs Maxine. If he ever heard a noise outside, Trevelyan would grab his carving knife and run out of the house brandishing it like a lunatic. Trevelyan had also visited his cousin, Lenore Penner, and confessed to her his involvement in the murder of Barry Lane. He detailed how Lane had been tortured, strangled, wrapped in plastic and dumped in a 44-gallon drum retribution for having abused not only Thomas but Wagner and potentially many other young boys too. Lenore had thought the story was wild but no more so than any other that Thomas told. Nevertheless, she wrote about the conversation in her diary on 30th of October 1997. The final straw for Maxine when it came to Thomas Trevelyan, however, was on the 4th of November 1997 when he threatened one of her daughters. Maxine later said, quote, Thomas threatened to kill the puppy my daughter was holding. 
She was running around the car trying to keep away from him and Thomas was chasing her with a knife in his hand and threatening to cut the dog's throat. I told Robert that he had to get him out of the house. I was frightened about what might have happened. Robert and John took Thomas for a drive that night and I never saw Thomas again. Bunting and Wagner drove Trevelyan out to Humbug Scrub near Kersbrook, where they forced him out of the car and demanded him to walk, prodded him with a stick as he went. They forced Trevelyan to step up onto a crate and slipped a noose around his neck, insulting him incessantly as they did, before kicking the crate out from under him. The pair laughed and watched the life drain out of the young man as he hung, swaying in the breeze. Bunting rifles through the 18-year-old's pockets, taking his identification but leaving $6.50 in hopes of making it look like a suicide to the police. And it worked. A truck driver passing through Kersbrook the following day looked down an embankment purely by chance and spotted the camouflage-clad body of a young man hanging from a rope off a tree, swaying in the wind. Police were called and inspected the scene, and the body was quickly identified as Thomas Trevelyan by his own grandfather. But considering Thomas's history of mental illness and his suicide attempts, coupled with his recent instability regarding Barry Lane, who police now suspected to be in Queensland, their investigation into the death of Thomas Trevelyan would reach the simple conclusion that the young man had indeed committed suicide. It wouldn't be until some time later the police would discover otherwise. But it was becoming quite clear by this point that Bunting and Wagner were not just targeting a perceived type, be it an alleged pedophile or a gay person, they were also getting rid of anyone who could potentially connect them to anything. They were also proficient at running their ongoing scams on the side, stealing, defrauding government payments from their victims, identity theft. It was profitable but second to their growing bloodlust, which in itself was growing much closer to home. By early 1998, Jamie Vasakis was in a bad spot. He was living with his mum Elizabeth, two younger brothers and older half-brother Troy in the house at Murray Bridge. Vlasakis was a stone-cold junkie by this time, regularly breaking into houses and businesses and stealing to feed his sometimes $300 a day heroin habit. A lifetime of emotional torment and physical abuse had railroaded the now 19-year-old who supplied his drug habit with binges on cocaine, Valium, benzos, speed, anything he could get his hands on, really. But Jamie Vlasakis, who in his early teens had become besotted with John Bunting, asked him to become his father even, and been nurtured and taken under the wing of the clever, strong-talking man, was now petrified of him. Bunting had groomed Jamie into a life of violence, not just with constant spewing of hate towards pedophiles and gay people, but by killing animals in front of the young man. One time, Bunting had trapped a dog and forced Jamie to shoot it in the head, and when he couldn't, Bunting laughed and did it in front of him. Another time, Bunting caught a cat and made Jamie watch as he killed and skinned it. And as Jamie grew and witnessed more and more of John Bunting's persona, the gloss of his previously shining armour began to fade, and the love he once felt for the man turned into a paralysing fear. Things would reach a whole new level of scary for Jamie Vlasakis in 1998, when his friend Gavin Porter, who was also a drug addict that Jamie had met in a methadone program, moved into the family home at Murray Bridge. Gavin stayed with them for about three months. Bunting immediately hated him because he was a drug user, further exemplifying Bunting's selective agenda – 
as he had done hating gay people but accepting Robert Wagner and now hating Gavin Porter yet accepting Jamie Vosakis. But Elizabeth Harvey, like Gavin, he seemed to be a pleasant and mild-mannered young man. Gavin Porter was born in 1967 in Victoria and from a young age he lived at Ruff. His mother suffered from manic depression and he was effectively raised by his grandmother. Porter grew into a regular young man with baggage that many of us carry. He worked as a telephone technician before spending some time in the Philippines before coming back to Australia in 1992. It's then, age 23, that Porter descends down the dark path of drug use, becoming addicted to heroin. Only a year or so later, Porter's mother died from cancer, which sent him spiralling. Porter packed up and headed to Adelaide, where he spent many months wandering the streets of the CBD aimlessly, a glazed-over junkie with a faraway look in his eyes, before he headed north to Salisbury Downs. Here, he met Jamie Vlasakis in December of 1994, when the pair entered a methadone program. Neither of them lasted, and they eventually became mates, relapsing into the destructive cycle that so many do, and renting a room in a share house together. The pair remained friends over the years, and Gavin moved in with the family for this time in hopes of cleaning up alongside Jamie and making a better future, but these good intentions are short-lived. But John Bunting doesn't like Gavin Porter, and that dislike intensifies into a hatred when Bunting finds loose needles lying around that Porter had carelessly left after shooting up. Elizabeth Harvey has a word to him, but Porter, who is constantly nodding off around the place, high on cocktails of heroin and methadone, can't keep himself together for long enough before he's pissed off Bunting again with yet another carelessly discarded needle. One time, Porter nodded off while inspecting the motor of his car. He staggered in hours later with battery terminal imprints on his forehead and toppled into the television set. It all came to a head one day in early April of 1998 when John Bunting sat on his couch in the shed out back and copped one of Gavin Porter's needles in his elbow. Porter had nodded off in his car, as was a frequent occurrence, when John Bunting and Robert Wagner attacked. Wagner looped a rope around Porter's neck and began strangling him, but Porter came to pretty quickly and fought back. Grabbing a screwdriver nearby, he slashed wildly and stabbed Bunting in the hand. Bunting, fuming at his target's resistance and his hand injury, thrusted his knee into Porter's chest to ensure that he went quickly as Wagner choked the life out of him. Bunting stared Porter down, millimetres from him, feeling his last breaths fan across his face. Bunting loved the feeling as their soul left their eyes, knowing he'd taken it. Jamie Vlasakis had taken his younger brothers out to the drive-in cinema that day, and when he returned home, Bunting ushered him into the shed at the rear of the property at Murray Bridge. Vlasakis was thrown that Robert Wagner was there, eating a Chinese meal with his mother and Bunting. After a brief conversation, Vlasakis followed Bunting and Wagner out to the shed, where they'd lifted up a bunch of old cushions and a sheet that showed him his departed friend, Gavin Porter. He had obvious signs of bruising around his neck from strangulation. Vlasakis stood terrified looking at his friend. It was at this moment he realised John Bunting was a cold-blooded killer. He'd heard the chatter and bravado over the years, seen the violence from the man, but this was a whole new level, the final confirmation. But whether driven by fear or a drug-induced haze where he just did whatever Bunting said without much care, 
Vlasakis would go on to drive with Wagner back to Adelaide in Porter's car, where they slept for the night. Most people were simply told that Gavin Porter had moved back to Victoria, and on face value it seemed plausible. What else would a transient junkie like Porter do? They stole all of Gavin Porter's personal possessions after this, and then a couple of days later, Bunting returned home with a barrel, and he and Vlasakis put Gavin's dead body inside. The barrel would eventually be moved to Wagner's residence temporarily. Meanwhile, Bunting gifts all of Porter's social security benefits to Jamie Vlasakis, who spends most of his dead friend's cash on drugs. From this point on, Jamie Vlasakis is essentially enchanted under John Bunting's spell once again, and it remains debatable how cognitively aware of that he was at the time. Scared and complicit and weak, we can probably say for sure. Bunting, meanwhile, was quite happy with how the bodies in his barrels were rotting and desensitised his young apprentice was becoming. It was time for Jamie Vasakis to get his hands dirty. Sometime in July or August of 1998, no one will ever know the date for sure, Jamie Vlasakis is roused from his sleep by John Bunting and led out of his room to where his brother Troy lay sleeping. Robert Wagner and their sidekick Mark Hayden were there too. John Bunting didn't like Troy Ude, Jamie's older half-brother. He, too, was a drug user, but most importantly, he was a pedophile and rapist in Bunting's mind. If we recall, Troy and Jamie, having both suffered abuse at the hands of Spiros Vlasakis when they were young, Troy had ended up repeating the cycle and raping Jamie when he was a young teenager. Jamie Vlasakis had confided in Bunting and told him this when they were in their earlier father-son bonding days, and Bunting hadn't forgotten. Bunting and Wagner handed Vlasakis a bat and ambushed Troy as he lay in bed. Elizabeth had gone to Adelaide at this time, staying in the place at Waterloo Corner Road for a few nights with the two younger boys. Troy was instantly terrified and began screaming out to his brother, asking what he was doing. Bunting simply declared, now, and he and Wagner began laying into Troy with baseball bats. Troy desperately tried to fend off his attackers, but he was no match for their ferocity. Bunting yelled at Jamie to put the handcuffs on his brother, and he did. Then they marched Troy down to the bathroom, where they threw him in the bathtub and continued to beat him with the clubs. At first, Jamie thought they were just going to beat him up as a lesson and make him apologise. They did all of that, and then they kept going. Troy Ude, fearing for his life now, screamed and winced in pain as Bunting and Wagner began to punch him repeatedly in the genitals. Then Bunting insisted that Troy call him Lord Sir, Wagner God, Mark Hayden Chief Inspector, and to choose a name for his brother who he'd raped. When Troy, foaming at the mouth now and tears streaming down his cheeks, returns with the name Moses, Bunting becomes enraged, shouting that it was a Jewish name before laying into Troy with more punches. They settle on Master for Jamie, before Wagner and Bunting begin administering painful torture on the young man. They crush his toes one by one with pliers, on the knuckle and then on the nail. Then they force him to repeat a slew of lines that they record for future use, all made to sound angry with phrases such as, leave me the fuck alone, I've had enough and you're going to stay out of my life. More than 20 phrases Bunting forces Troy to say as he recorded them, Then he made Jamie bend down near the tub and tell Troy what he had done to him, demanding an apology. Troy said sorry and reiterated he'd apologised before and meant it, but Bunting and Wagner weren't done. They put on a CD, 
the popular 90s alt-rock band Live, their album Throwing Copper, the song Selling the Drama, before shoving a sock into Troy's mouth and wrapping his face with duct tape as the brutal bashing continued. They wrapped a blue nylon rope around Troy's head and began ratcheting him up with a car jack. Jamie Vlasakis, who had been in and out of the room, watching and involved at times, sickened and leaving the scene at others, was peeking through a crack in the door at this time and noticed Wagner had hurt his hand. Turns out he'd broken it. In one version of events due to overzealous twisting of the nylon rope, and in another, Vlasakis claiming that he'd hit Wagner's hand with a bat. Either way, the ending would be the same for Troy Ude. As he drifted in and out of consciousness, Robert Wagner eventually got optimum purchase and strangled Troy to death in front of his brother Jamie, while John Bunting stared his victim in the eye, continuing to abuse him in the final moments as the life drained out of him. Once he was gone, Bunting ordered Jamie to kick his dead brother in the head. They lay Troy out on the floor now, and Wagner stands on his chest to ensure he's not breathing. Any remaining residual breath gurgles out of his nose and mouth. They wrap his body in plastic bags and the four men carry him out to the shed. His body flopped between two barbells, one man on each end. Inside the shed, Jamie Vlasakis dry-reached at the acrid stench. Bunting and Hayden can't smell it and Wagner doesn't care. They left Troy's corpse on the floor for two days before returning with a new barrel, slightly smaller than the others, and cutting his feet off to make his body fit. Bunting asks Jamie how he felt about his first murder, encourages him to look inside the barrel with the rotting corpse of Gavin Porter and tell him how it smells. Jamie says he felt good to keep up the ruse, but inside he was terrified and felt sick. But he thought if John Bunting could do this to his brother, he could do it to him. But his inner feeling aside, Vlasakis happily took his brother Troy's key card and accessed social security benefits for more drugs. When Elizabeth returns from Adelaide, Bunting and Vlasakis give her tale after tale about how Troy up and left. They'd had a big quarrel and he just took off. They keep this up for a while and Elizabeth struggles to comprehend, but she's clapped out beyond belief from all the chaos. She doesn't feel well and all she can do is have a bath. Bunting and Vlasakis reinforced positives about Troy in the months thereafter, telling her they bumped into him, he'd gotten a girl, and was doing well for himself. But that was all a lie. And something in Elizabeth Harvey must have known that. I mean, she knew what Bunting was capable of. She sent one of her boys off to live with another relative shortly after this, before the family moved literally down the road in Murray Bridge to another property. The problem with this place is that they had nowhere to store the barrels. In the dead of night, Bunting and Wagner loaded the barrels with the remains of Barry Lane, Michael Gardner, Gavin Porter and Troy Ude into a furniture removal truck and took them to Mark Hayden's house in Blackham Crescent, Smithfield Plains. Hayden nodded silently as Bunting and Wagner loaded the barrels into his garage for safekeeping. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mm. 
Mark Hayden's house had become crowded in recent times. His wife, Elizabeth, had a sister named Gail. She'd moved in recently, having left Queensland soon after the disintegration of another relationship, and with her, she'd brought her 17-year-old son, Fred Brooks. Gail set herself up in the rear rumpus room, and Fred took the couch. Within days, she'd met Mark Hayden's friend, John Bunting. Gail Sinclair was instantly enamoured by the short and confident talking man. She was flirtatious with him from the start. To Bunting, Gail seemed to have no self-worth, was easily manipulated, obese, and had a government pension coming in. He thought she was disgusting and perfect all at once. Soon enough, they were having an affair. That didn't go down too well with Fred Brooks, who wasn't too impressed with John Bunting and the state of things around the Hayden household. No one worked. They all sat around smashing cups of coffee all day and mindlessly nattering before filling out paperwork and making the trip to Centrelink. His mum and Auntie Elizabeth chatted incessantly throughout the day while a near-catatonic Mark Hayden sat there, almost comatosed, with John Howard-like brown eyebrows encroaching on the rest of his bearded face. Brooks wasn't the most academically inclined kid, but he had a cheerful personality and was a trusting young man. His mother Gail, however, was a disturbed, mentally fragile and dependent woman who used her son as a primary caregiver, and this burdened Fred greatly. Add to this that he'd had a childhood spent in foster care as his parents separated, then reunited, then separated again over the years, and he understandably had baggage of his own, even at 17. But he was interested in girls, he had desires of joining the Air Force, In fact, on the 17th of September 1998, he'd attended an Air Force Careers Day and was excited at the prospect of joining up. That night, he was heading to a party in Victor Harbour, where he joked to his mother Gail that he planned on getting pissed and laid. But Fred Brooks wouldn't make this party. Instead, John Bunting and Robert Wagner lured him to Bunting's house in Murray Bridge under the premise that they were going to rob a computer warehouse and the score would greatly pay off for young Fred. Jamie Vosakis was fixing his gearbox in his car when Bunting came and got him, telling his young apprentice that he had a surprise for him. Bunting worded Vosakis up that they had Fred Brooks inside and to play along. Jamie had met Fred before and thought he was all right. He doubted that Fred Brooks was the pedophile that John Bunting was painting him out to be. Bunting needed no more reason to hate Brooks than he was Elizabeth Hayden's nephew, He despised her because she was morbidly obese and that disgusted him. Secondly, Brooks had grabbed Jamie's knee once in an attempt to steady himself as he fell from something. And now, Fred Brooks was a dirty. When Bunting and Vlasakis entered the house, Wagner was playing a seemingly harmless game involving handcuffs and a thumb trap with Brooks. After some small talk, things turned. Jamie could see where it was heading. Wagner wrapped his arm around Brooks' throat from behind and they marched him down into the bathroom. The next series of events would very much play out similar to how they treated Troy Ude. They beat Fred repeatedly in the groin, butt cigarettes out on his nose and ears, crushed his toes with pliers, and ordered him to make statements that Bunting recorded, just like with Troy. They also made him call them nicknames like God and Master once again, and singed his flesh with a cigarette lighter to make a smiley. Bunting actively encouraged Jamie Vosakis to get more involved in this attack, and whether out of fear or confusion or some part of him wanting to help, Jamie did just that, punching Fred Brooks in unison with Wagner and Bunting. 
but beating Fred Brooks to a bloody pulp in the bathtub wasn't enough. Bunting had a few tricks he wanted to try this time. The first of his new torture methods involved a device called a variac. Commonly used in electroplating, a variac is an electrical device that, once connected to mains power, flows a current through its cables and out through two alligator clips. This one had the ability to go from 0 to 260 volts. They attached the clips, one to Brooks's penis and another to his testicles, and subjected him to brutal electrical torture, increasing the voltage and the pain. The unimaginable pain Fred Brooks was in would only get worse when Wagner shoved a sparkler into the tip of his penis and lit it. The trio watched it burn down and Brooks wail in agony before doing it all over again. Throughout the entire ordeal, Bunting accuses Brooks of being a dirty and a pedophile and keeps at him to admit that he committed certain acts. Jamie Vosakis got the impression Fred hadn't done these things, but eventually relented and admitted when the pain was just too great. Bunting and Wagner continued to beat the boy senseless until he was a battered and burnt cherry mess in the bathtub. But they still weren't done. The last painful indignity inflicted on Fred Brooks was when a delighted Bunting and Wagner injected water into various areas around Brooks's groin. When death finally came for Fred Brooks, it was probably welcome. How long he'd been tortured for, we don't know, but it was a horrendous end for the young man. He too would end up in a barrel, and the meticulous planning of his disappearance would also go smoothly as Bunting, Wagner and Vlasakis defrauded the young man of his youth allowances and other social benefits in his death, with Vlasakis posing as Brooks and attending Centrelink to claim these benefits. The tale of Fred Brooks taking off, too, would convince most people, including his mother, when she received some phone calls from him in the days after she reported him missing. It was Fred on the phone, that was for sure, but he sounded different, abusive. Elizabeth Hayden tried him too and is shocked at the mouthful of abuse she receives, but at least the young fellow was alive. They lodge a second report to police saying that Fred was no longer missing. They'd spoken to him and he'd taken off. Police promptly closed the file. And with that, Bunting had another victim to his tally. Another dirty off the street, as far as he saw. Ridding the world of filth, he was doing society a favour, and it was another time where he got to see the final glimmer leave someone's eye, feel their last breath, that feeling of omnipotent power. John Bunting loved that. And after murdering her son, Bunting showers, gets some McDonald's to eat, and drives back to Hayden's property and sleeps with Gail in the rumpus room out back. She's blissfully unaware of what's happened to her son and charmed by the sweet-talking little man in the bed beside her. So in terms of our timeline, we're around the end of October, early November 1998 by now. Jamie Vilasakis was now part of the murderous group, having been involved in the last couple of attacks in an increasing capacity. Mark Hayden, while debatable if he was ever an active participant or not, was certainly around, aware of most of the goings-on, and storing several barrels with bodies in his garage. But John Bunting and Robert Wagner's urge to kill was just getting stronger. The lies these guys were now telling, and they'd never been honest blokes prior to this, but you can see with the power of hindsight the utter lies they were putting out there to family and friends was all just to enable what they saw as their new line of work, and they were loving it, laughing it up whenever they were together. 
Bunting would spot their next target while cruising the streets heading up to the local Woolworths with his graduate killer Vlasakis. The guy he pointed out was named Gary O'Dwyer. Bunting said to Vlasakis, look at that fag as they passed O'Dwyer, adding that he looked a lot like Troy. And that really was the only motivator for singling out O'Dwyer. There was no indication that Gary O'Dwyer was a quote-unquote dirty, nor Fred Brooks for that matter, so we can see here the original reasoning behind his and Wagner's intent of cleansing the filth had morphed into a thinly veiled justification to murder people. Bunting went on to use Vlasakis here in a very much a grooming role, encouraging the younger man to get to know O'Dwyer, with the end game of him being to become the lure, leading O'Dwyer into Bunting's hook. He also got Vlasakis to find out about his family, who was close to him, and if he was on a pension. Gary O'Dwyer, like most of the people we've talked about in this case, had a rough start in life. He was about 18 months old and in foster care, having been abandoned not long after his birth in 1969. He was noticeably underweight and had been diagnosed with epilepsy when Maureen Fox wandered into a government state care office and spotted the young toddler. She instantly fell in love with him and her and her husband, Dalmain, adopted O'Dwyer. The couple had been unable to conceive their own children, but went on to adopt a swag of seven foster children. Sadly, Dalmain passed away suddenly in 1974, leaving Maureen to raise all seven kids on their family farm in the Adelaide Hills. So O'Dwyer had a loving family around him, but despite this, became a bit of a lost soul and a drifter into his mid-teens, living on the streets and becoming involved in petty crime. In 1994, O'Dwyer was involved in a hit-and-run accident, struck and left for dead on the side of the road. He was comatose for a week thereafter, but pulled through, required steel plates in his head and leg thereafter to support the severe shattering to his frame he'd suffered. This left an enduring scar on Gary O'Dwyer. He had brain injury, a permanent limp, and struggled with basic functions from time to time. By October 1998, he was living in a rental in Murray Bridge, receiving a government pension, had become a heavy drinker and drug user who was prone to violent outbursts. O'Dwyer was also quite a trusting soul and would often befriend people too fast, only to come home and find out he'd been robbed. So for Jamie Vlasakis, making friends with O'Dwyer at Bunting's behest was a relatively simple task. One evening, Bunting and Wagner were driving along Murray Bridge Street when they passed Vlasakis in his car and waved him down. Vlasakis, when asked, told Bunting he was going to a party that night. Bunting said, no, no, you get in the car with us and you can go to the party after, before going on to plot, what about Gary, can we do Gary? Tell him you've got a couple of friends and you want us to come over for a drink. So Vlasakis did as he was told. Later, around dusk, the trio went to Gary O'Dwyer's place and as they entered, he introduced Bunting and Wagner. After a few drinks lubricated some small conversation, Wagner suddenly grabbed O'Dwyer by the throat. He began having an immediate reaction, almost like a fit, and Wagner eased up on Bunting's instruction before they handcuffed the defenceless man and ordered him to sit down on a mattress that had been leaning against the wall in the kitchen. O'Dwyer was in shock, his legs shaking, asking them, what's going on, what was this for? The torture that Gary O'Dwyer suffered would be a carbon copy of what Fred Brooks had endured. Nicknames he had to call his attackers, questions about his banking, pension and family, the use of the Variac, sparklers, lighters and tape, 
interspersed with a violent beating from both Bunting and Wagner. Bunting also goes through the rituals of having O'Dwyer repeat phrases, which he records to explain his soon-to-be-permanent absence, alongside grilling him about having sex with young boys and girls, neither of which there's any evidence to suggest that Gary O'Dwyer ever did. All the while, Live's throwing copper album blares in the background, and in some versions of events, after Vlasakis leaves to attend his party, having been an active participant in O'Dwyer's beating, Mark Hayden arrives to observe and assist in the aftermath. Within days, O'Dwyer's house was cleared of most of its contents, and his body was in a barrel in Mark Hayden's garage. Gary's mother and siblings search high and low for him, but he simply vanished. Allegedly gone away of his own accord, they discover when speaking to acquaintances. That was the story that had been passed around. Maureen, who'd last seen Gary walking down the street only days earlier, was unsure why he'd taken off and why he hadn't gotten in touch. But he was a drifter like that and she didn't immediately have thoughts of foul play. And Mark Hayden would become a more central figure as we move into the next series of events. It was said that Hayden had told his wife Elizabeth about the dumping of Clinton Trezias's body at Lower Light several years ago now. John Bunting told Jamie Vlasakis that Hayden had a big mouth, but he'd proven useful, his old pal and storeman. His wife, though, well, Bunting already detested her. She was obese, which disgusted him, and alongside recurring STIs she allegedly had, she knew too much about their nocturnal activities. She had to go next. On what was most likely Saturday the 21st of November 1998, Mark Hayden and Gail Sinclair had left the house for a drive to Adelaide's southern suburbs. For what purpose? Who knows? But Elizabeth Hayden's boys were being babysat by her brother Garion over this weekend, so Elizabeth found herself at home alone. And that's when Bunting and Wagner struck. At first, Elizabeth Hayden thought the pair were joking, and when Bunting, the primary antagonist to begin with, began assaulting her, Elizabeth called out to Wagner to help, but he didn't listen. They frog-marched Elizabeth down to her own bathroom, and she, like victims previous, was savagely beaten, handcuffed, made to read out phrases to explain her disappearance, and tortured, before they shoved a sock in her mouth, taped her mouth closed, slipped a noose around her head, and Wagner strangled her to death. Bunting, delighted to see the life drain out of Elizabeth's eyes, the disease-ridden mole that she was in his view, is equally pleased to add another body, another trophy to his growing assortment of barrels. Elizabeth Hayden, hard as she was to move for Bunting and Wagner, is shoved into a barrel in her own garage. When Mark Hayden and Gail Sinclair arrive home, Bunting, whose meticulous plotting of these murders had gotten sharper each time, spins a story that Elizabeth had made a pass at him and got really upset when he spurned her advances, she was now in her bedroom calming down. Mark Hayden, no doubt aware of what had transpired, discussed the situation with Gail and Bunting, and they all agree that Mark will go into the room and speak with her, while Gail goes with John down to get some takeaway. When they return, Mark Hayden says Elizabeth's taken off, phoned an old boyfriend and simply gone. This was plausible to Gail. Elizabeth had done this before, taken off with blokes and left the kids for extended periods. Friends of Elizabeth's also attempted to contact her in the days thereafter and Elizabeth answered the phone a few times, 
telling them she was okay or hurtling abuse and telling them to leave her alone. Bunting's recorded messages at play here. Bunting and Wagner threw stories out there in extended circles, saying she'd gone to the cross. Once again, this didn't sound implausible because Elizabeth had conducted sex work before. So the plan was going off without a hitch. Mark Hayden would continue collecting his wife's government benefits while her decomposing body lay in his garage, another number in the Bunting-Wagner collection, their murderous lust satiated for now at least. But Elizabeth's brother, Garion, who'd been minding her boys, wasn't as convinced by the stories. Mark Hayden had rolled up the day after her disappearance to pick up the boys and he'd repeated the same tired story to Garion. She'd taken off with an old boyfriend. Then the following day, when the boys showed up back at their Uncle Garion's house, saying that Mum hadn't come home and that they didn't want to stay there, Garion became more concerned. He spoke to Mark Hayden again and advised him to report Elizabeth missing to the police, but he was reluctant to do so, claiming that she'd come home drunk and taken off with another man once again. A few days later, when Garion visited the home to see if his sister had returned and found that she hadn't, he reported Elizabeth Hayden missing to the police. And this missing persons file found itself on the desk of a detective named Greg Stone. And what made this case different from other missing persons reports that flooded in, I'm not sure. Maybe it was the factors of Elizabeth being a mother. Maybe she wasn't on the fringes of society as much as some of the other victims. Or maybe it was just instinct on the police's part. Whatever the case, Mark Hayden seemed suspicious to police. His story wasn't holding water, and neither was that of his friends, Bunting and Wagner, who parroted a similar tale about Elizabeth taking off. Not only did police think their story of her whereabouts was a bit off, but so was the foul smell coming from Mark Hayden's garage. Police would end up searching the Haydens' residence and they'd find things to indicate that Elizabeth might have fallen victim to foul play. They found her wedding band, her wallet and identification, and luminol lit up in an area in the laundry, which Hayden and Gail Sinclair said was from a dog who'd had a litter of puppies in the room. But the search of the garage showed up with nothing, even if it stank to high heaven. Bunting was aware of the heat coming down on them immediately when the police microscope had fallen on Hayden and his residence. Bunting had organised the midnight removal of his trophies just in time. It wasn't the first time they'd had to move the barrels. They'd taken them from Murray Bridge to Hayden's place, and they could do it again. The smell hadn't gone unnoticed on the landlord at Murray Bridge either. The pungent odour of rotting meat wasn't something that easily escaped those who still had their sense of smell. But Bunting organised to store the barrels at a friend's property in Hoyleton, about two hours north of Adelaide. Simon and Kathy Jones were happy to oblige and help their friend, John, who they'd known as a decent man. Upon arrival, the sheer smell emanating from the barrels was overwhelming. It was lucky the Joneses had room to move on their property, and Mark Hayden's old land cruiser could be parked out of sight and out of smell. Bunting had told his friends that the barrels contained kangaroo carcasses, that he and Wagner had a bit of a business going where they'd shoot kangaroos and once the carcasses had softened, get it all minced up and sold on as pet food. His friends took that explanation at face value, but the Joneses didn't stay in Hoylton for too much longer. In January of 1999, they'd moved to the quiet, sleepy little hamlet of Snowtown, and being the good sorts they were... They obliged when Bunting asked to transfer the barrels to their new place too. The problem was 
This place was smaller and the smell much more noticeable, particularly to their new neighbours. Bunting had to find someplace else to store his kangaroo carcasses. And the place he found was an old bank building in Snowtown itself. The old red brick structure had once been a thriving financial hub servicing an area that was full of productive farms. But as times toughened on that front coming into the 90s, farms hit harder times and financially the belt really tightened. A decline in local business saw the bank's feasibility fall by the wayside. The doors were eventually closed in 1995. After this, around four months later, a local farming couple named Rosemary and Andrew Michael bought the old building for the sum of $43,000, with the thinking being it was a prime location and would become a sound investment in time once things picked back up. The Michaels had first leased the building to a lady who ran a nursery of sorts out of it, but by January 1999, her business had ran its course and the Michaels needed a new tenant. That's around the time they received a call from a man named John, who had a look around the bank with them shortly after and agreed to lease it for $60 per week. He was a polite man with a surly, quiet, bearded offsider, who we know to be Mark Hayden, and for the most part, they rarely visited. They just paid their rent and kept to themselves. On the odd occasion, they'd visit during the night, which would earn them a glare out the window from the old lady who lived next door to the building, But Bunting had told the Michaels he and his colleague would be storing alloy parts for mechanical tinkering that they did. In reality, they moved all of the barrels into the vault of the bank during the dead of night, and Bunting finally had a new home for his trophies. But once again, the smell was an issue. Bunting would try to mask it with air fresheners, but it was all in vain. He'd even hang black plastic up inside the vault to try and keep the stench in. But when they did visit, Bunting and Wagner would spend time savouring their kills, popping the lids of the barrels and further mutilating the bodies, cutting them up to make them fit better, checking how well they were rotting. They'd laugh as they looked through the contents, and on one occasion in particular, Bunting and Wagner had stripped the muscle from Troy Ude's body, which had caused Jamie Vosakis to leave the vault. That was just too much for him. Mark Hayden too was out the front having a cigarette. He also couldn't take the stomach churning activities going on inside. When Vosakis went back inside, Bunting said they'd cut Troy's balls off. They were filthy and he began wildly stabbing at the crotch of Vosakis's decomposing brother. Now you'd be forgiven for wondering where the police were in all of this. As we know, they'd had their ears pricked in recent times with the disappearance of Elizabeth Hayden raising more than a few eyebrows. But in reality, the police investigation had began back in July of 1997, during a cold case review of a missing person from several years earlier, a young man named Clinton Trezice. The police connected the missing person's case of Barry Lane to this inquiry as well. Lane and Trezice knew one another, and although initially police thought Lane was in Queensland, that was no longer looking likely. And what had given that away was that police had caught Robert Wagner numerous times on CCTV withdrawing money from Barry Lane's bank account. It wasn't a gold nugget linking Wagner, it would have just been a solid fraud charge, but police suspected something more. 
They pushed for more video surveillance, calling upon federal resources and they attempted to obtain warrants for telephone intercepts. But police resources were stretched. The funding to surveil a guy and his mates who had maybe committed a fraud simply wasn't there. The crime was still low level. It didn't warrant one of the six telephone intercept lines available in South Australia at the time. It wouldn't be until 1999, when Elizabeth Hayden went missing, that the inquiries into this crew escalated dramatically. Pretty soon, police had linked the cases of Suzanne Allen and Ray Davies. The same names kept coming up over and over in relation to these people once police began looking past a surface cursory glance at what appeared to be another missing persons case, one of thousands in the state each and every year. John Bunting, Robert Wagner, Mark Hayden. So with the links being made, the police had a relatively strong inkling that they were dealing with murder here but they were unaware of the details, how dark, twisted and prolific this spree of serial murders actually was. And that's the shame of it, that it took so long for these disappearances to be linked and become classified as a major crime, that during this 16-month period, a further eight victims were murdered. Michael Gardner, Barry Lane, Thomas Trevelyan, Gavin Porter, Troy Ude, Fred Brooks, Gary O'Dwyer and Elizabeth Hayden. And the thing was, in the police's defence, it's hard to see how these could have been stopped by anyone outside of who had been involved. Jamie Vasakis could have come forward, and Elizabeth Harvey too, but they would have their own reasons later as to why they didn't, mainly relating back to the fear of John Bunting and the potential retribution they'd open themselves up to should they turn against him. And the majority of these victims hadn't been reported missing, particularly the last string, excepting Elizabeth Hayden, the killers had gone to great lengths to select their victims. Drifters, drug users, people who had run away before, people who had had suicidal tendencies before, so their absences were not raising eyebrows. Police surveillance by this time had become hot on the likes of Bunting, Wagner and Hayden, but they still didn't have the resources to follow them around the clock each and every day. And it was on one of these off days, Mother's Day, the 9th of May 1999, that David Johnson was lured to Snowtown by Jamie Vlasakis, his stepbrother, under the premise of buying a cheap computer, when he was attacked and brutally murdered by John Bunting. David was the only victim murdered within the bank itself, and we covered the details surrounding how this unfolded in the introduction of the episode, so we won't go over that again. But what we will do is talk a little bit about David. David was an identical twin, he had a brother named Michael, his mother was named Carlene, and his father was Marcus. And we know Marcus would eventually end up with Elizabeth Harvey before John Bunting came along, and during this time David had moved away from his mum and come back to live with Marcus. He got to know his stepbrothers Troy and Jamie during this time, and even when he went back to Victoria for a bit in 1994, Troy and Jamie still came and visited him. But David never got along with Bunting. He thought he was strange and violent. David hadn't had a lot to do with Bunting directly since coming back to Adelaide from Victoria, where he'd stayed with his mum and then his brother for a time. But now back in Adelaide, having not been able to hold down a job for long and drifting in and out of enthusiasm for life, David was hoping to settle and find his feet again while living in an apartment with his dad, Marcus. David's murder followed the same blueprint, if you will, that the most recent victims before him had endured. One difference was that upon getting his bank card, 
Wagner and Vlasakis tried to go and withdraw some funds from his account, but he had no money. During the time they were gone, David Johnson bravely fought for his own life, attacking John Bunting. He managed to break some of Bunting's ribs and then lunged for a nearby Stanley knife to ward off his attacker. But Bunting, cunning as ever, yelled out to Robert Wagner, who he knew wasn't there, but David Johnson didn't know that. And when the young man looked to the doorway, thinking the hulking bloke who'd been beating on him for the last however many hours might come back in to finish the job, Bunting took advantage and subdued Johnson, tackling him to the ground before choking him to death with his belt. When Vlasakis and Wagner returned, Johnson was dead on the ground and ready for a barrel. Bunting was injured though, and therefore Jamie would have to be more actively involved with Wagner in the quote-unquote slice and dice of his body. But before any of that, the psychopathic killers had one more level of depravity to descend to. If Jamie Vasakis had almost vomited from all the dead bodies he'd been around, the smell of flesh cooking would surely push him over the edge. Wagner walked out of the kitchen with a seared piece of David Johnson's leg muscle, he and Bunting munching away, a pair of cannibals. They encouraged Jamie to eat some, but he couldn't do it. His stomach churned at the thought of it. Alongside the increasingly regular surveillance, which we know was not being conducted on the night of Johnson's murder, the police had also been tapping and recording the phone calls between the men for some time now. But the calls, legally, weren't able to be listened to in real time. So even armed with this information... Stopping David Johnson's murder was something they missed and were too late to prevent. But the police were still hot on the trail of Elizabeth Hayden's disappearance. They strongly suspected murder and Mark Hayden, John Bunting and Robert Wagner to be involved. They'd received a tip-off in the months prior which had described a man or men fitting the suspect's descriptions shoving black bags into the back of an old Toyota Land Cruiser, shortly after Elizabeth Hayden had disappeared. The police already had a slew of circumstantial evidence mounting against these guys, who they suspected were involved in potentially four or five murders, but at least that of Elizabeth Hayden. By the time they got to checking out this dodgy four-wheel drive they'd received the tip-off about, it had gone. But on Thursday the 20th of May 1999, Police had tracked the Land Cruiser down in the small rural farming region of Snowtown, about 150 kilometres from Adelaide. Simon and Cathy Jones were understandably terrified when the police showed up at their house with search warrants, stating they were there to seize the four-wheel drive Land Cruiser that had been spotted in their driveway. Simon Jones calmly explained that it wasn't their car. A friend of theirs had stored it there but had to move it when the smell from the barrels inside started to upset the neighbours. When police asked where the barrels were, Jones told them they were in the bank. At 1.12pm, Detectives Stone and McCoy, alongside officers Drake, Marsh and Day, entered the bank and began investigating the building. At 2.24pm, Drake pressed record on his video camera as they entered the bank vault, a sheet of black plastic taped to the doorframe, a slit down the middle to allow entry. Inside, the overwhelming smell of rotting human remains was unmistakable to the police. There were by this time six black plastic 44-gallon barrels within the vault. Nearby, there were surgical gloves, knives, handcuffs and bottles of hydrochloric acid. By 2.30pm, the police had called it in. 
The next day, on the 21st of May 1999, the police came for John Bunting, Robert Wagner and Mark Hayden in the early morning at their respective homes, with warrants for their arrest, all of which were executed simultaneously. The trio were charged with murder and all reacted in line with their personalities. Bunting, a smarmy prick who wouldn't cooperate and wanted a lawyer, Wagner, a thick-headed, foul-mouthed dropkick who had nothing to say, and Hayden barely able to string a sentence together when he was awake. Only a couple of days later, the police, now going through all of the homes associated with the killers, would locate the remains of two more victims in the backyard at 203 Waterloo Corner Road, those of Ray Davies and Suzanne Allen. Jamie Vlasakis was arrested a week later and charged with murder, and pretty quickly he was cooperative to the point of forthcoming, I understand he even came forward with information that implicated him but also helped with the mounting case. Bunting, Wagner and Hayden were all subsequently charged with 10 counts of murder, but as things became clearer, these charges would alter, with Bunting getting a couple more, Wagner one more, and Hayden eventually whittling down his involvement to that of an accomplice effectively. Vlasakis was charged with four counts of murder and he would turn star witness at trial for the prosecution, And the tale would be that of a young boy who'd had a troubled childhood, was taken under the wing of a man he initially liked and maybe even loved, only to discover this bloke was the worst of all, and he basically had to cooperate for fear of his own life. Vlasakis' initial hopes were to secure immunity from prosecution, but inevitably that wouldn't happen for him despite his guilty pleas and assistance with numerous hours of statements and tales bolstering the prosecution's case. Immediately, he had to be separated from the general prison population, he'd been labelled a dog for turning, and they held Lasarkas under another name to protect him. Elizabeth Harvey would end up being implicated, but would die from cancer on the 6th of February 2001, before seeing the inside of a courtroom for her involvement in the murder of Ray Davies. The building of the case was so extensive and time-consuming that publicity had really died down in the press by the time it got to trial in 2002. But before this, it was a media storm around the small town that, like Churro from last week, was really hard done by and forever affected by these crimes that didn't really take place there for the most part. But the worldwide story would immediately cotton on to the name and dub it the Snowtown Murders and the Bodies in the Barrels case. On the 16th of October 2002, Bunting and Wagner's trial commenced, lasting for 148 days, before on the 8th of September 2003, almost 12 months later, which was the longest trial in South Australian history, Bunting was convicted of 11 murders and his silent sentinel Wagner was convicted of 10 three of which he inevitably confessed to. Bunting received 11 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Wagner received 10 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. The pair were sent to South Australia's Yatala Prison in different divisions. Jamie Vlasakis was sentenced earlier in July of 2002 after providing details and evidence that helped the Crown Prosecution build their case. He received four consecutive life sentences with a non-parole period of 25 years and to this day is held in isolation under another name at an undisclosed South Australian prison. 
Mark Hayden's trial, with the amount of back and forths regarding his evolving or more accurately diminishing list of charges, wouldn't go to trial until 2004 in August. Once again, this would drag out for almost 12 months, with juries deadlocking over his guilt on certain charges. In the end, his charges of murder were dropped in exchange for a guilty plea to helping dispose of some of the bodies, including that of his wife. He received a sentence of 25 years with a non-parole period of 18 years. In 2011, more than 250 suppression orders were lifted upon request from the producers of the movie Snowtown, which was a dramatised depiction of events surrounding this case. Chloe, you've watched this. I purposely didn't leading up to researching for it. But there's been a number of books written on the murders as well. Jeremy Pudney's Snowtown, Andrew McGarry's Snowtown Murders, and Debbie Marshall's Killing for Pleasure. And really, the lasting stigma the town of Snowtown has suffered is very sad for the region and its residents. While they experienced a small tourist-driven economic boost in the time after the grisly discovery, I even heard tales of people going up to the old bank building and trying to smell in it, which is just messed up, But really, the short-lived boost died off and the town has been left with this tarnished name that's more famous for the murders than anything else. In 2012, there was talk within the community of changing the town's name to Rosetown, but those ideas seem to have halted in recent times. The house on Waterloo Corner Road in Salisbury North was demolished by the State Housing Trust to prevent it becoming a macabre tourist destination, And the bank in Snowtown was sold in September of 2012 to new owners who intended to live in the attached house, not the bank itself, while running a business of some kind out of the bank building. And they intended to commemorate the victims with a plaque. Mark Hayden has been serving his time in Yattler's B Division, separate to his pals Bunting and Wagner. He's said to be the same on the inside as he was out, keeps to himself, yes sir, no sir, three bags full, He looks like a haggard country and western singer nowadays. And it's theorised, if he hasn't already been transferred, that he will go to a lower security facility at some stage before his sentence is up. Robert Wagner is also in B Division at Yattler, but in a different spot to Hayden. He likes to big note himself, but most of the prison population think he's dopey and have no respect for him, nor do they fear him. Jamie Vosakis, as we said, is imprisoned at an unknown location. He is considered a dog, so he is kept segregated and his face is still prohibited from being displayed in photos. Although there is always a few renegade photographers willing to post online. And John Bunting is housed in E Division at Yatala. He has a cell of his own, having threatened to attack any cellmate the authorities put with him. He has attacked an inmate once who gave him shit for something, and has been known to carry around a pencil dipped in faeces, warning other inmates that the stab he'd give them wouldn't be half as bad as the infection they'd suffer afterwards. He relishes his reputation as Australia's most prolific serial killer. His bravado is just the same inside as it was out. Arrogant and talking tough, talking violent, talking of escaping prison to seek revenge on the police who put him there. He is feared amongst the prison population for being an utter psychopath who's constantly reliving his violent past and dreaming of doing it all over again. For John Bunting, the dirties are everywhere. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So that's Snowtown. Um, On to our thoughts. It's 
hard to pick a place to start on my thoughts with this case, to be honest. It's obviously so shocking, sad and senseless. There are so many victims and so many actions and depravities to comprehend. The socioeconomic factors at play here were something that I wasn't really prepared for. Learning about these people and their stories, I don't think I grasped the magnitude of the systemic social issues that were happening. That being said, I did listen to Jeremy Pugney being interviewed on Australian True Crime and he mentioned that he was actually from Elizabeth, a town close to where all these crimes happened, and he made a comment that stayed with me that said there are some people like the ones described in this case, but there are also some bloody hardworking people that make the most out of their lives. And I think that's something that's not mentioned when talking about this case. Well, certainly in the movie adaptation, it was missed. It left you with a pit of hopelessness for the people at the centre of this story. The escalation at the end of this too, just prior to the arrest, it's so intense. How horrible too that these people found each other, that this group of obvious psychopaths found each other, found other people that were willing to go along with their thinly veiled reasons for justifications of killing. That's what I think that was. The vigilante work was just a guise to help them carry out murders they wanted to. A meaningless reason to kill, really. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So as I said, I purposely didn't watch the movie because I anticipated it might have you sympathising with Jamie Vlasakis, which you mentioned it sort of did a bit close. Yeah, a little. And from one point of view, I get that. Being a movie, there has to be someone who you like to enjoy it. You can't hate everyone in the movie. But as I was going along and researching this, I just didn't have any sympathy for Vlasakis. And I was happy to hear, as you were saying, Chloe, you mentioned uh, the Australian true crime episode they did with Jeremy Pudney, the author of Snowtown, uh, that he too felt like that. I purposely also didn't listen to that episode or Case Files as to not be influenced uh, in how we told this tale. But you said he'd grown up in the area, as you mentioned, and what Vlasakis had endured was no excuse for standing idly by and actively participating as he did. Yeah. I personally think it was his drug habit that was the number one motivator at the time. I think he was very clouded by that and he was happy to go along with it all as long as he was getting his chop out. He was just using all of these victims' benefits to shoot up his arm, basically. I also personally think that Mark Hayden was more actively involved in what is made out. You know, he was definitely this sidekick type, but you don't go along with all of that, show up during a few of the murders, be complicit in your wife's murder without getting some sort of pleasure from it, in my view. I think it was more than, he was more than just the, the barrel storer who, who picked up takeaway while the boys were killing. I mean, it's just a sickening case, probably the worst case of serial killing in our country's history. What drove Bunting and Wagner was pretty obvious, but as you said, Chloe, it was a thinly veiled excuse for wanting to kill people. Simple as that. So many lives lost. It's very sad for all the victims and their families, and I feel for the suburb of Snowtown too. I mean, Salisbury North and Murray Bridge are where the majority of the killings occurred, yet Snowtown hosted the final grisly discovery and has been tarnished ever since, so... It's a dark and twisted case to end season two, Chloe, but hopefully we've done it justice. Hopefully. Well, if we've ever needed one, we need the happy thought now. So do you have a happy thought to finish this off? I do. I've got a good one. I actually got to thank you directly for it, for bringing this into my life. (laughs) But a few weeks ago now, Chloe bought a little heater for our pod studio here, which is just... um, 
changed things so much for the better because it was getting pretty crisp in the evenings. <laughs> Weather chat. Yeah. But it was just a little $30 heater from Big W, but my little office space I've got at home, there's no heater in there. And it's been getting really, really chilly. I thought, I'm going to pick up one of these little heaters that Chloe bought. So I bought the heater, plonked it in there, and it's been really good because we've got two little dogs. And they I was saying to you earlier, they're getting under you know, my wife and my little kids' feet and we're in a little uh, place at the moment while we, we're building. And um, my one of my little dogs, he's great, but he just gets in the way all the time. <laughs> and now I've got the little heater set up. He's happy to come and sit in my room with me for the majority of the day and <laughs> just awesome. sit in front of the heater. So it's sort of solved two problems. And I was saying to you, who would have thought a $30 <laughs> yeah. little plug-in heater would have such an impact on your life? So. Keeps you warm and subdues animals. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's so good. Um, my happy thought is coffee-related. So we're recording on a Saturday today um, so we can have a few weeks off and no one misses out on any episodes. And normally we record at night and I can't drink coffee after like, I don't know, 11 a.m. Mm. Um, so I am always tired when we record but can never have coffee. So this morning I got coffee and came here. So I was pretty buzzy when we started, but yeah. it was also so fun and felt a bit naughty because don't normally do it when we record <laughs> yeah, podcasts. Right. Yeah, it's so, a different vibe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my happy thought. Excellent. Very good. Uh, and if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime dash podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $2 per month, you'll get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, and much more. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. Thank you to everyone who's reviewed us this week. We read them and we love it. We'll be back next week with a bonus episode along with some show updates and what we have planned for season three. And we might read a few five-star reviews too, Chloe, finish the season with a positive. Yeah, good idea. Thanks again for your listenership throughout season two, everyone. We really appreciate all of your support and the encouragement we've got from you, uh, people who've emailed us and joined our Facebook group. Take care and we'll catch you all again next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 